Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study/biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College of Vancouver. You're about to listen to part three of our five-part series on five views on the Exodus. And this comes from a book edited by one of our hosts, Mark Jansen. And uh, so I hope you'll enjoy this. Mark and Chris McKinney are going to be interviewing Dr. Gary Rensberg for this episode. As always, please give us a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this episode. We'd appreciate that. And it helps people find out about what we're doing here. And we hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. Listeners, we're back to On Script, the Biblical World podcast. We are continuing our series of the five views of the Exodus. I am your host, Chris McKinney. I am joined by my co-host, Mark Jansen, who is the main editor of this, uh, of this volume. We've already had a few already in this series. Today, we are joined by Professor Gary Rinsberg, uh, and I'll let Mark tell you a little bit about uh, the project overall, and then, of course, we'll hear Gary talk about his, his view. Uh, welcome of the Exodus. I'm really excited for this one. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. Always a pleasure to join you as co-host here. So, uh, as you know, the book is called Five Views on the Exodus, and we try to guide the reader to sort of understand how complex this topic is. One of the reasons I wanted to put this together is you see a lot of I frankly, really quickly thrown together blogs and vlogs and documentaries that usually just take one position and act like it's the you know only view or something like it's just perfectly set in stone. And the truth is, scholars have been debating these topics for, for quite some time, and it actually is a very difficult topic to just answer definitively. And so I wanted to bring scholars together in a way that would get them engaging one another, which I think hasn't happened in a lot of in a lot of ways, to a satisfactory level. It's a lot of just fighting in journals um, and, and sort of have a discussion within the book. And we are very pleased to have Gary Rensberg here with us. He holds the Blanche and Irving Laurie Chair of Professorship in Jewish History at Rutgers University and has numerous books uh, and articles on the Hebrew language and the Bible itself. His most recent book, I believe, is How the Bible is written, and you also, relating to the Exodus, co-edited, I believe, Did I Not Bring Israel Out of Egypt, uh, with another contributor of uh, our book, Jim Hoffmeyer. And Gary has pioneered a very intriguing view that the Exodus should be dated to the reign of Ramses III, which, for those who aren't familiar listening, that reign would be around 1186 to 1155 BCE, or basically a century after the the so-called late date or the traditional late date. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Chris. It's good to be with both of you. So I wonder, Gary, if you could just um, sort of walk us through your view and what you might think of as the, the five or so best sort of pieces of evidence or lines of reasoning for your view. Well, the number one issue is that Israel does not emerge in the land of Canaan until the 12th century. Uh, we begin to see what uh, we identify as uh, early Israelite culture in the Central Hill, country, Central Hill Country in the 12th century. We're talking about elliptical sites and other material culture issues uh, which emerge at that time. 
So if the Exodus occurred in the 13th century, uh, where were the Israelites for such a long period? Uh, I do not take the 40-year wandering literally, but even if one were to, uh, you'd still have the same uh, question. So that's item number one. Uh, item number two, the years that the Bible presents are always uh, idealized numbers, round numbers, multiples of 40, and so on. Uh, they're clearly not the kind of accurate chronology which we get later on in the biblical period when we get to the Book of Kings, where we have a much more accurate chronology of things. And so I prefer to use the genealogies of uh, the Bible as a relative chronology. They allow us, if we can figure out how many years per generation, they allow us an estimate as to when individuals and events, when, when individuals may have lived and when events with which they are associated uh, may have occurred. Now, there's only one biblical figure who has a genealogy which stretches back to the generation of the Exodus, and that's King David. His genealogy preserved the end of the Book of Ruth and then also in the Book of Chronicles. He is five generations removed from the figure of Nachshon. Now, he may not be a well-known character uh, to readers of the Bible, but he appears both in Exodus 6 as the brother-in-law of Aaron and therefore connected uh, to you know, the whole Moses family. And also in uh, the book of Numbers, uh, as well as the leader of the tribe of Judah. So if there's any historicity to this figure, Nachshon, and to his place in these two biblical passages, which are totally independent of one another, the genealogy of the uh, family of Moses and Aaron in Exodus versus the uh, listing of him as a leader of the tribe of Judah in, in the book of Numbers. And he's five generations prior to David. David is uh, can be fixed, the beginning of his reign, to almost precisely 1000 BCE. So if you work back, that means Nachshon would be living sometime in the 12th century. Now everybody questions how long, asks the question, how long is the generation? People use 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, and so on. Uh, I think it's 30 years. I think I can defend that as I've done in print. And so five generations before David is puts you in 1150 BCE, smack in the middle of the 12th century. Uh, extrapolate from that and you look at Ramses III as the, uh, to my mind, the most likely Pharaoh of uh, the Exodus. Now, let me add a few more. I've been going on here for a bit, but let me just add a few. No, go for it. Yeah, a few more uh, items to note. Uh, the pharaohs of the 13th century, most famously, of course, Ramses II, but even his son and successor, Merneptah, they were exceedingly powerful. Uh, we don't, uh, I can't imagine any kind of an Israelite exodus in the 13th century, uh, regardless of how we imagine that story. Moreover, when the Israelites do arrive in Canaan, as described in Joshua and Judges, they encounter all sorts of uh, other peoples, Philistines, Canaanites, uh, on the journey, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, and so on. But never are there any Egyptians mentioned. Now, if the Exodus occurred in the 13th century, if the Israelites arrived in the land anytime in the 13th century or even the first quarter or first third, maybe even the first half of the 12th century, we know from the archaeological evidence the Egyptian empire is still all over in Canaan. They have major garrisons in, in Beit Sha'an and in Gaza, and we have evidence for them in Lachish and, and Megiddo and other places, it's hard to imagine that the Israelites um, would not have encountered the Egyptians. So 
to me, that's a good piece of evidence of another piece of the puzzle here. Uh, when they arrive in it, in, in, they must have arrived in Canaan after the Egyptians pulled out and their empire uh, in Canaan ended, which is about 1150 uh, BCE. And the final piece of this is that Ramses III had major, major problems to deal with. Most famously, the invasion of the Sea Peoples, um, approximately 1180 BCE, depending on the chronology you use for dating these uh, pharaohs, 1180, 1175. And I think that that would have been a propitious time for the Israelites to leave. And I think there's even a clue in the book of Exodus, chapter 13, where it says that God did not lead the Israelites along the coastal route, I'm paraphrasing, although that was the closest way to get from Egypt to Canaan, lest they encounter war. Well, this is exactly where the Sea People's invasion is happening, led by the Philistines. Ramses III was able to repel the invasion, but uh, this weakened Egypt tremendously, leading to what I described a moment ago, the end of their uh, empire in Egypt and their land holdings and territorial control and garrisons, in Canaan rather, sorry. Uh, so I think that these all, all of these lines of evidence converge, right? It's the, it's the Egyptian side, it's the Israelite archeological side, it's the biblical side. To my mind, the 12th century works best. Yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a fascinating theory. You're kind of bringing together different strands of, and I don't mean this in a negative though, some people do use it that way, of circumstantial evidence, by which I mean evidence that needs a circumstance to sort of explain why it exists. Uh, I think it's very interesting. I myself am uh, more of a traditional late dater, uh, though I do think one thing that's kind of interesting is that the end of the 19th dynasty is also a, a fairly chaotic period with the throne in Egypt changing hands a lot, which I think the Israelites could have um, left just before that, which would be a little later than the classical take. I mean, I still think probably Ramses is, is still pretty likely. Merneptah is a, probably fairly old by the time he's even pharaoh after Ramses' long reign. And they might just have you know, bigger fish to fry, as it were. But I, I do think the, the view you espouse is very intriguing because it does try to take seriously each of the data and doesn't, to my mind, I think some of the other views might prioritize one thing more than the others. And I think that can be to the detriment of the view overall. So, for example, I think one of the one of the points that I think is most difficult about the so-called early date is is the point you mentioned about Beit Shan and these other Egyptian garrisons. I mean, like, are they just like, oh, hey, new people, come live next to it? You know, it's like very hard pill to swallow. Um, I wonder if you might address what I think maybe it was pointed out in the book as one of the, the bigger difficulties. I think you might admit this as well, is the Merneptah steel as reference to Israel. It might be worth hearing from you on that. Right. So the Merneptah Stila, listeners will have, um, if, if you know about this, if, if great, if not, let's repeat it and mention the basics. So approximately 1210 BCE, 1220, 1210 BC, depending again how you date the 19th dynasty pharaohs, um, campaigned in Canaan. And he mentions amongst the various places that he uh, conquered or defeated uh, Canaan generally. And then he mentions uh, particular cities. Uh, such as Ashkelon and Gezer, we know where they're located, and Yanoam, which we don't know where it's located, but we have a general idea, somewhere around the Sea of Galilee, most likely. And then he mentions Israel, also as one of the defeated people. It's the only mention of Israel in an ancient Egyptian text. It's the earliest reference to Israel um, probably anywhere, including in the Bible. It probably antedates our earliest biblical literature by half a century or so. So uh, how do I explain that, right? Now, all of these other places, Gezer, Ashkelon, and so on, 
are indicated as places, and as I said, we know where they're located. Israel is not indicated as a place, but rather as a people. The people of Israel were defeated. And it raises all sorts of questions. So on the on, in my earlier publication on this, uh, going back several decades now, I suggested that it refers to the Israelites still in Egypt enslaved. Uh, and the uh, scribe who wrote the Merneptah steel was aware of these Israelites who came from the land of Canaan. And since Merneptah has just campaigned there, um, he threw that line in. But of course, they're not a geographical location. They're the people of Israel. Uh, I suggested an alternative in that in my early publications, which I think I'm now, now more inclined to um, posit, which is that these are Israelite elements in the land of Canaan uh, who did not take part in the Bible's greater narrative, that greater narrative of the Isidus, that is to say, the entry into Egypt, the slavery and the Exodus. However, we envision those. Uh, the Bible portrays an idealized history with all 12 sons of Jacob going to Egypt, developing into 12 tribes, all coming out at once and becoming the nation of Israel. Uh, we know that history doesn't unfold that way. History is much more complicated and nations do not descend from the offspring of a single individual. So I am more inclined today to interpret the Merneptah steel as Israelite elements somewhere in the general region of Canaan, um, perhaps in the Central Hill Country, perhaps in the Transjordan, uh, whom the people who are still in some sort of semi-nomadic capacity, which is why they are indicated as a people, not a place of Israel, uh, whom Merneptah's troops encountered and defeated. Um, so the, the, either of those options now tilting over the course of several decades more and more to the latter option. Gotcha. Thank you for the uh, explanation. Can agree to disagree on what the reference tends to, I suppose, without much trouble. Uh, but again, I, I, Mark, Mark, yeah, go ahead. Can I, can I jump in there for a second before yeah, you ask the absolutely. next one? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, a very interesting idea. And there's, there's much to be commended about how to try to put these pieces together. I mean, there's so much that's going on. And uh, what I like about it is it's, it's approaching it from the perspective of the, of both the biblical sources, as well as the Egyptian sources. And I would just simply say that I, I completely agree with the the fact that in Joshua and Judges, let's say if you hold to a 15th century view, that there's big issues because Egypt is just simply absent from from these sources. And I, I find it really interesting that you, you're comparing, you're, you're adding on to that and saying it's even a problem for the for the 13th century view because of the the absence of of Egypt. Uh, but on the other hand, it is interesting to me that even though we don't have the names. Egypt referenced um, in a book like Joshua, uh, I keep coming back to this passage in Joshua 17, where you have the references to the places that the Egyptians would have been, particularly in the Jezreel Valley and particularly the site of Beit Shan. Um, and another thing that I think is um, certainly relevant, and this is one of the, the exciting things I would say about where we find ourselves as archaeologists and people interested in this question of, of early Israel and settlement is we've all kind of been dealing with the same archaeological da data for the last 40 years, 50 years even, uh, from the um, from the Finkelstein and Bunimovich survey of, of the highlands. Um, and so with the new publications that are coming out um, of the Southern Samaria survey and presumably more investigation of these uh, with excavations, 
Um, the, the truth is, is that it's clear that there's an Iron One explosion of sites, but when exactly the Iron One starts in the highlands is based upon very fragmentary evidence um, of, 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 a, of a strata at Shiloh and a strata at the Ebal altar. Um, and so the, the, the truth is we, we don't know. And if you, if for our, for our, our listeners, uh, the Near Eastern Archaeology um, um, magazine that produced a great series of essays on this very question, coming at it from a much more critical view than, than I would in terms of the conclusion, but they present the data and they show just the problems that we were, we're not able to assess it. And so if it turns out that you know, some of these settlements actually are a little bit earlier that they would be into the late 13th century or so, which has been a suggestion made by uh, Ralph Hawkins, and perhaps even some of the Philistine sites at, at Tel Asafi Gath, for instance, and Kubar al-Waladeya, that seems like that the so-called Philistine layer, Philistine city, could be as early as the 13th century. Um, those are the types of questions that potential, the types of data that could potentially push it one way or the other. So um, I, I, I commend you very much for trying to make the data fit uh, with, we, with these different things, but uh, how exactly it is with the data um, and will the data change in terms of the dating, uh, we're all kind of interested to wait and see if that does. I have to chime in here because I'm, I'm, I'm smiling as you talk, Chris. I'm, I'm talking to somebody who really knows the archaeological scene uh, in, in Israel uh, in the person of um, uh, Chris McKinney. And, and, and it, what I'm smiling about is that uh, uh, 40, 50 years ago, you know, Iron One ended in around, you know, 1225, 1200. And, and then people started moving it to around 1150 and so on. Am I correct? And, and, yes, and even yes. later. Right. And, and, and so that pendulum swinging back a little bit now. So, um, you know, we don't for, you know, as we all know, and as our listeners should know, that there, there's just no good hard core way of dating. Um, you know, there, there's no explicit evidence that gives us, oh, this is the date on which something or something happened. I mean, we have little bits of that. For example, when you discover the scarab of an Egyptian pharaoh at a particular stratum at Lachish or Megiddo, uh, or a fragment of, a, of, a, of an inscription. And since those pharaohs' reigns are pretty much secured, give or take five to ten years in either direction, but it's still very difficult to, to pinpoint these down. And, you know, if everybody who's listening is thinking, well, carbon-14 tests, yes, they're very helpful, but, you know, if you go back 3,000-plus years, we have a plus minus of 50 years. Is that right, Chris? So, you know, if right. You, something like that. It, it, and even more, and even more, if, if, you know, depending on who you ask, some people would say 70s, you know, yeah. if your date yeah. comes out to be, you know, 1190, well, that means anywhere from, you know, 1250 or 1260 down to 1130, 1120. So, you know, that doesn't help us that right. much either. Right. So we have yeah. these issues which we, which we can't resolve at our present state of, of, of knowledge and evidence. I'm glad you brought that up with the range. Cause one of the things I kind of wanted to ask too is, um, you know, when you're talking about the traditional late date and your late, late date, if I may, the, the difference is really 70, 80 years. So it's something around there, depending on who you ask and where they're putting the traditional late date and, and what part of Ramses' reign. And then I think about the big sweeps of archaeology and settlement patterns. I wonder how much overlap there could potentially be. And I think it's important to kind of keep that in mind as well. I might shrink that 70 or 80. Um, 
there are people who still hold Ramses II as the Pharaoh of the Exodus, which always puzzles me. Almost undoubtedly, if you take the biblical story seriously for a moment, almost undoubtedly, he's the Pharaoh of the slavery. I mean, if they're building the cities of Ramses and Pithom in Exodus chapter one, certainly we know that this is Ramesside construction, meaning Ramses II. And um, then that Pharaoh dies at the end of Exodus two and a new Pharaoh comes to the throne. That would have to be Merneptah as the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, for me, I think there's a passage of time and a transition from 19th to 20th dynasty, which you alluded to and mentioned a few months, moments ago, Mark, which is a time of great chaos in Egypt until Ramses III uh, establishes himself securely as the new pharaoh. Of, of, he's, he's not the first, he's the second pharaoh of the 20th dynasty, but he establishes himself in a more secure fashion. Um, so we may be, and, and if I'm going to date the uh, exodus to around, you know, the Sea People's invasion early on in Ramses III's reign, it may be more like 30 to 40 years that we're arguing about, which makes it even more difficult to pinpoint, right, you know, those right, kinds yeah, of smaller sure. differences. It's, it's, it, that's, that's where we are, Yeah. Can I, can I just add one other thing that I really appreciate about uh, something that I've come more and more convinced of and is, is the points you make even about the the idea that there is an Israel that's in the land already. Now, listeners might be thinking well, you're kind of avoiding the idea of, of an exodus, but in even the biblical text itself, we just take the biblical text alone, you have all of these, you mentioned some of the genealogies, like you have in Chronicles of all of these different peoples that are connected with Israel. But if we think of even something like uh, Exodus or Joshua, the story about a Gentile like like Rahab or the Hivites, or even the fact that you have uh, in Joshua 8, the, uh, the covenant ceremony right beside the biggest city-state in the highlands, it's clearly indicating that there's there's these other people, the mixed multitude uh, 2.0, kind of coming out of Egypt, that are part of this. And what I think is so exciting is, you know, when I was a student, you go through and you have all of these different theories that are being offered. And the, the reason why you have these theories is because it's based on some of the evidence. But the more you look at, you can see how a lot of these theories can jive together with. Um, with, in, in terms of how both the Bible and the archaeology, depending on your perspective. Now, of course, there are many who would just simply say all of its eighth century or Persian period, and all of its all of its. And I think the important thing is we're allowing for these early strata of the text to to connect with historical with the historical background, which, from what I've heard of. Uh, every person till now is all allowing for that in some way. It just depends on your perspective on how much. Yeah, I think it's important to also uh, emphasize the following. I mean, we say the Exodus, it makes it sound like it was a single and singular event. And I think we also have to start thinking about this as a process, right? Um, we didn't mention the term Shasu yet, which we should probably state here. I think the Israelites are part of the Shasu movement. This is the Egyptian term for the... Uh, desert dwellers, nomads, semi-nomads, and so on. Their name appears in a variety of Egyptian texts. And we even have a great Egyptian papyrus from the Anastasi collection of Shasu of Edom uh, settling in uh, in the city of Pithom. I mean, it doesn't. It sounds like it's almost the Israelites. I don't want to magically cross out Edom and write in the word Israel there. But, uh, you know, dated to the time of Merneptah, we're talking about a time period that is just all part of this biblical story, and we do have some Egyptian evidence, given the fact that Edom and Israel are so closely aligned with one another, uh, as represented by the twinness of their 
ancestors, Jacob and Esau. And let's remember that for the Egyptians, maybe the Edomites and the Israelites were all one and the same, and they really couldn't even tell the difference. They're all just part of this great Shasu group out there in the southern desert regions of Israel and across the Sinai and southern Jordan. Um, and for Americans in particular, I like to always use the example of uh, early America. We create a national epic over the Mayflower event, but we all know it was a process, right? There were earlier settlements in Virginia. Jamestown is earlier. There's the lost colony of Roanoke Island, which is even earlier in North Carolina. Um, there's a second ship called the Mayflower, which is bringing other people in the 1630s and so on from England. Uh, there's the story, of course, of Africans being brought to this, these shores against their will, starting in 1619. Uh, it's a much more complicated process, even though we all may sit down to Thanksgiving dinner and celebrate a single event. Uh, we know it's a process, and I think that that's what we have to think about when we talk about ancient Israel as well. People, they moved into Egypt, into the Eastern Delta, they left Egypt, um, and some remained behind in in Canaan, and they were all part of this group of Shasu, and one segment of that emerges as the people of Israel. Right, and I think, you know, even historically, as you're, you're mentioning, I'm trying to think just off the top of my head if I can even come up with a migration anywhere there's just one clean, done event, right? Like, I mean, it's usually a, a kind of messy thing with multiple, you know, kind of migrations, and we might streamline it into one, as you're saying. I wonder if you might also address some more of the Egyptian background within the text without necessarily looking in the chronology, but maybe just in terms of the authenticity authenticity of it there. Um, well, at this point, we sort of distinguish between the historical. We've, we've been wearing our historian hats at the moment. And if you start looking at the way the narrative is told, we have a whole other issue involved. And um, is that what you're asking about, Mark, the way the biblical story is, is narrated? And uh, there's so much of the Egyptian background uh, in those first 15 chapters of Exodus, Exodus chapters 1 through 15. Um, we have Egyptian stories about uh, baby Horus being hidden by his mother Isis in a basket in the bulrushes uh, to protect him from his wicked uncle Seth. Right. And it's a parallel to the Moses story, birth story in Exodus 2. Uh, we have accounts of these plagues. Um, not of the plagues, but we have parallels to this material as well. Uh, we have statements in Egyptian records. It's not from the time period, but over the course of all of ancient Egypt, we have a, a material of the Nile turning into blood, and we have references to darkness, and, and we actually have a story about a magician who can split the waters. It's exactly what you see in Exodus 14 and 15. Uh, obviously not related directly, but these are tropes in Egyptian literature, clearly the book of Exodus is speaking to an audience that knows Egyptian literature well enough that it can use these tropes and it can use these themes and it can use these motifs actually as a subversion of ancient uh, Egypt. And the best of those is the famous weighing of the heart scene in the book of the dead, go into any major Egyptian collection in the world, everyone has a Book of the Dead manuscript from the New Kingdom period. And you uh, have the weighing of the heart where the deceased's heart is being weighed against the feather of truth. And of course, it's always the scene is the, the, the deceased always um, passes the test and moves into the next world and is introduced to Osiris, the king of the, of the, of the afterlife. 
God of the afterlife. Um, but what happens if your heart is heavy? Well, it falls to the ground because it hasn't balanced against the, the feather of truth. The devourer eats up your heart and the whole afterlife is denied to you and Egypt goes into chaos. So when you read in Exodus that Pharaoh's heart was heavy, you know, for us, this means, well, he was obstinate. He wouldn't let them go. I mean, you know, we, we understand what the and all that's true. We, we certainly know what the biblical text is trying to say there, uh, no matter how many times Moses makes a request. But behind that heaviness of Pharaoh's heart, uh, the Hebrew word kaved, heavy, which appears multiple times uh, in Exodus, uh, in, the, in the plagues narrative in particular, is a whole background of ancient Egypt that would have been known to these people. Not that they ever saw a book of the dead manuscript, but they would have known, they would have known the readers of this biblical text, the listeners to this story would have known exactly what these references are all about. That's really, that's really interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I, knowing that you also have backgrounds in other of these uh, biblical backgrounds, uh, I wonder if even thinking about Exodus 14 and Exodus 15, the fact that there's similarities not only with what we have in Egypt, but also what we have, let's say, in uh, kind of the idea of conquering over the sea uh, that we might have from Ugarit. And maybe if you could comment on how there's kind of a variety of background elements going on in the text that speaks to, um, let's call it the identity of, 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 of Israel and, and, and the way that they're telling the story. Yeah, I, I'm actually... Um less sanguine about this connection to the to you know, God's victory over the sea, whether it's, you know, um, in Babylonia, Marduk, in, in Ugarit, um, Baal, uh, over Yom. I, I, I think that's less important. Other biblical passages speak to that. Obviously, you have some poetic references of that in Psalms, for example. But I think that that's not behind the Exodus 14 and 15 story. I just don't see it there. I know very important scholars have, have read that and interpreted the story that way. I, I like to just point to this Egyptian parallel in this particular case. Yeah. I also should point out, by the way, that Herodotus, the great Greek historian, tells us that uh, to the Egyptians, death by drowning was a noble death. It's like, you know, you, you go immediately into the afterlife. You don't have to undergo all of the uh, tests and trials and, and so on, uh, rituals that are outlined in the Book of the Dead. Uh, now, Herodotus is writing in the 5th century. He visited Egypt. He has a detailed description of the country and its culture. And he makes this statement. And we have some evidence of this, by the way, from ancient Egyptian texts as well. So it's almost to my mind as if the author of Exodus 14 prose, Exodus 15 poetry, is saying, you think death by drowning is a noble way to die. That's fine. We'll arrange it for you. And uh, basically, that's what happens there in those chapters. Right. Very nice. Well, I have a few uh, non-Exodus-related questions for you. Um, on, on script, we like to uh, ask and kind of break up the interview a bit. So really important question, coffee or tea? No question in my mind, tea. I'm a oh. major tea drinker, right? Major tea drinker. Okay. Okay, we're um, starting to have a better split on that question. Now. We are. You know, we're getting yeah. a, a good divide. Yeah. Um, and tea, tea, tea means real black tea. I mean, real tea, not 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 fusions of herbal gotcha. tea and so on. Real black yeah, so tea. My next counterpoints volume was going to be five views on coffee <laughs> or tea. So I hope you'll be willing to contribute there. As and well. there'll be more. And there'll be more than five. Yeah, uh, yeah. there are twenty-five <laughs> contributors. <laughs> Okay, so what is the one thing in biblical studies that you wish would die? 
I can't say that because I might offend very respected and respectable colleagues. Okay. <laughs> we like it. Okay. Um, so uh, I would say dividing the narratives into uh, micro, sometimes microscopic component parts. So if I speak here about the documentary hypothesis, uh, there's no doubt that Leviticus and Deuteronomy, more or less P and D in the theory, uh, clearly those are separate sources. Those are uh, derived from uh, different schools of ritual and, and law and, and so on. Uh, but the narratives, to my mind, are to be treated as literary holes, and I always have to say, meaning with a W, W-H-O-L-E, literary <laughs> units, literary holes, holistic <laughs> approach. And if you divide them up into their microscopic parts, which typically mean this verse goes to J, and this one goes to E, and this one goes to P, or this paragraph, or that half verse, or whatever, uh, you really miss the literary beauty of the biblical narratives um, in Genesis, in Exodus especially. So those that that would be the one thing I wish that disappeared from biblical studies. Great question, Chris. Yeah, and, and is there a book written by someone on Genesis that argues for this point? Oh, there might be. Uh, thanks for the plug. My first book, <laughs> my first book was called The Redaction of uh, Genesis, which deals with literary structures in Genesis, which are um, which disappear if you uh, divide them up. Now, you, the author, the, the, the answer could be, well, the compiler, the editor, the redactor took it all and, and created that final version. Uh, that's true. But as I argue, notwithstanding the title, The Redaction of Genesis, uh, it's more likely that this happened at the authorial level than at some later editorial level. I, I love that. Love that answer. I've always thought, and P&D aside, because like you said, they're, they're pretty obviously different. Uh, I've always thought if it was so clear that the other sources were there, why is it been a hundred years of squabbling over which one's G, J, which one's, it's like, maybe this doesn't work that well, guys. So I, I appreciate that. That definitely resonates with me. And I've argued that in, in print. I, it's not, a, it's not a good foolproof argument. If there was such evidence for why can't all scholars agree, which is J, which is P, which is E and so on. It's not a foolproof argument, but it certainly to my mind goes to a great, you know, it, it, it does speak, if not volumes, then at least chapters uh, yeah. as to why this, the theory doesn't hold. Yeah. Right. Of course, the Hebrew expertise means much more, but I just I've always thought that without having quite as much Hebrew expertise as you. Um, I wondered if you could could talk about a little bit more about the idea of the um, the different Exodus events or the, the sort of the process and how it connects to. The size of the excess, I think one of the things that the contributors in the book largely agree on is that it's, we shouldn't be looking for 600,000 warriors and 2 million people, and yet that's what most of our English Bibles do with the Hebrew term Elif. I think it might be helpful for our listeners to hear your kind of analysis of what we're getting wrong in that translation. So there's two approaches to this. So this Hebrew word Elif, which appears um, throughout the books of the Torah slash Pentateuch, literally means thousand. But almost undoubtedly, it also means something like clan or uh, something above the family level. So we'll call it clan for lack of a better word. And um, if you were to add up the census numbers in the book of numbers, and when it says X number of LF, and then it says, you know, however many hundreds and whatever, etc. Um, if that XLF actually meant X clans, supply an equal sign or something like that, so many hundreds, right? 
And that is one of the interpretations of this uh, term elif. Uh, it goes back actually to the great um, Sir Flinders Petrie, somebody who Mark knows well from his work at Karnak Temple. And uh, I believe he was the first one to, to posit this um, almost like a century and a quarter ago now. And uh, there's something to be said for that. If you add, if that works, then you wind up with only several thousand Israelites. Uh, you're basically removing the, the thousands. That said, I want to point out the following, as I've also done in print. The 600,000 figure that you get in Exodus chapter 12 is, a, is just a round number. Uh, the numbers in the census in Numbers chapter 1, of course, add up to not round numbers. Um, but if you take that 600,000, there's actually a nice parallel. And now we go back to what Chris said about Ugara. There actually is a nice parallel. In the Ugaritic uh, epic material, King Kirta uh, goes off on a military expedition with 3 million people, uh, 3 million men. So there also is this epic storytelling style where you have this ex ex exceedingly uh, large, very exaggerated number which must have been part of, to repeat the term, an epic storytelling style. So I want to have it both ways. I sort of want to keep the 600,000 figure in Exodus 12 and make that out to be, oh, that's part of the storytelling. Uh, not to be taken literally, no more than King Kirtus 3 million. Um, and I also want to take the book of Numbers and, and work that word LF there to really mean something like clan comprised of you know, X number. So if you have, you know, uh, if you have, if, you know, 40 LF and just, I don't remember the numbers, but, you know, 700 something men, that means there were 40 clans equaling around 700 men. That, that's certainly a much more sensible approach and gives us something more, you know, in the ballpark of reality that we can understand given the relatively small populations of the time. Right. I mean, if there's two to three million of them, they can just take over Egypt. <laughs> like, you don't need to go anywhere. It's just conquer the Nile. I love that you bring up the Epic of Kirta. I mean, it's it, for those people who haven't read the Epic of Kirta and are students of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, go read it. It's just a fantastic story. But to continue his, uh, uh, Dr. Rinsberg's point, I mean, the guy goes to a city, surrounds it for seven days to get a lady. I mean, there's, there's some really some interesting parallels even with the siege of, of Jericho and the conquest narratives that are that are that even have the accursed firstborn. Um, it's there's a lot of similarities, and it's right around this time frame that we have the story of of, of Joshua. And so it's just a very interesting uh, parallel to not only what we have in the Exodus and these very large numbers, um, but to some some larger biblical questions. In fact, uh, in most cases, I, I did this before, and almost every siege is seven days in the Bible in, in the Bible uh, because it's a kind of um, this is what a siege looks like. And so I, I just love anytime Kirta comes up, there's, uh, it's, it's one of my, you know, favorite niche kind of stories that exist out there in ancient Near Eastern stories. Let me, let me just put an additional plug in for Kirta and its importance to the biblical account. And I believe the first person to point out all of these parallels was my own uh, teacher, the late, great Cyrus Gordon, who wrote an article on, on the uh, legend of um, Kirta. I think in Gordon's pronunciation, he used to pronounce it Keret. Today, I think we're pretty sh sh secure that it's Kirta. And then um, a Spanish scholar, uh, Gregorio de la Molette, wrote another longer article on the subject. But another key element in the Kirta story is that when this massive army leaves, the 
epic poem stops to tell us that they baked bread for the journey. Now, as Gordon pointed out, all armies take their provisions with them. All armies, of course, have to have a whole food line, uh, which we don't think about in any ancient Near Eastern story, you know, uh, you know, Ramses II going to fight the Hittites at Kadesh or the you know, Syrian army going off to do something. They never talk about the provisions. Well, we just know from reality, of course, they had it. The fact that both the biblical story and leaving Egypt and the Kirta epic stopped to tell us about the baking of bread uh, is another key feature in the epic storytelling. Obviously, in the biblical story, it's all related to the uh, matzah and the Passover festival as well. But the fact that the story stops to actually include that element is a really small detail which links the Exodus account to the Kirta narrative. So I'm glad you're a big fan of the Kirta story as well, Chris. Yeah, I love it when they when the ancient authors give us these sort of they seem pedantic and obvious details. The Bible does this a lot too. I read a dissertation on this a couple of years back about the significance of when it mentions someone opening a door. But in modern literature it would just be obvious that they had to open that door. But all the things and all the symbolism that go into that. Um, but I wonder if we might return to the number issue, because I think one of the things that people, one of the reasons to write the book is, of course, to try to help people who aren't familiar with all these arguments sort of see this in a, in a more formal and scholarly way, but still that an educated layperson can understand. And I think one of the things people struggle with is we bring our modern present, our presentism on precision with numerals into reading ancient texts, and we think they must also be literal and I think very rarely is it crystal clear that this is a literal number, not exaggerated, not symbolic, but literal. And I think that's really rare, and that affects the chronology and, as you're saying here, but possibly the, the size of the Exodus. So we also have the Elif issue there. Certainly for this time period, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when you get to the Book of Kings, I think we're you know, probably looking at something pretty accurate. You know, King X ruled so many years, whether in Israel or in Judah. Um, you know, we can we can be pretty sure that you know there might have been some co-regencies and overlap between you know King A and King B, but you know we're looking at reliable numbers which allow us to create a, a pretty good analogy. And you know, I mean, just to pick out a king at random, King Jehoshaphat of Judah. I'm smiling because uh, Chris has written on uh, that king. I mean, you know, he lived a good long reign, but they're they're within the realm of of a reality. And you yeah, don't have that sure. when you get to the book of uh, when you go further further back in Genesis and Exodus. I mean, the ages. I'm not even talking about the antediluvians. I'm talking about even an age of Abraham <laughs> at 175 <laughs> and so on. Right. It's interesting. We want to. Some people, I think, want to read it as if the entirety of the Hebrew Bible has the same understanding of these really big picture things. But genre means a great deal. Changing in the way that they're using numbers is another fact. There's a lot of different starting points that can kind of get you into trouble if you're only filtering it all through kind of one lens. And that's why I like your approach is you're trying to do justice to the Hebrew text, the Egyptian background, the archaeological data. And I think that's one of the strengths of it for sure. Um, I thought we might shift gears for a second. Maybe one last question here. Um, with it being Passover, I thought it would be kind of fun to hear your, your connection, connecting all of this to even modern celebrations of the Passover and how the Exodus kind of resonates today in the themes and things like that. Right. Well, you know, it remains the foundational Jewish um, narrative story, obviously, and Passover remains the number one most celebrated holiday, certainly in the home, because it developed mainly as a home ritual. Uh, with the uh, Seder meal on the eve of, of Passover. 
And I, it, the, the, I appreciate the question mark. The, the, the themes of Passover, of course, you know, whatever terms you want to use, freedom, um, liberty, and so on, uh, ability to express oneself. Um, if you're a believer, God's hand in, in, in human affairs and history generally. Uh, these are themes which are 3,000 years old, um, which still speak to us and still work in, in so many ways. It, it just, it just um, it's palpable, uh, certainly for the Jewish people to you know, read these stories, which are just ingrained into the Jewish uh, presence. And of course, this is also true of the Christian tradition, except we lose it in English and in German, because all the other European languages have their word for Easter is based on the word for Passover. You know, so in Italian, it's Pasqua and so on and, and so on, which is just Hebrew, Pesach, Aramaic, Pascha, which got into, you know, Greek and Italian and Latin and Italian and French. And, and you know, English and German just, you know, have this Easter and Ostern, which are an old, you know, Teutonic spring festival of some sort that's the name gets continued on. And uh, so we lose track of the close connection between Easter and Passover because of the linguistic uh, uh divide in, 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 in English and right? German being the other European language that has that problem or has that issue. So, uh, you, you know, it's for your other, and this is a very small linguistic point, but I think it really speaks to it. If you speak a European language, uh, or never, never, you know, go back to earliest, um, Christians in the Middle East speaking Aramaic, which many of them still do. Um, you know, when they say Pascha, they, they know what it means. I mean, it is both the Passover of the Jewish Bible and the, I don't want to use the word Easter, the day of resurrection of the New Testament as well. Uh, so, uh, and of course, all of the themes that resonate for both Jews and Christians, but it, it's, it's, it's such a foundational story. And I guess one of the questions to ask, are there any other cultures in the world which are still celebrating a holiday that's 3,200 years old, give or take, you know? Uh, and for whom those themes still speak so closely. Um, and it's, it's really a remarkable tradition. It's powerful. It's very powerful stuff. And I really appreciate you making that point. Um, I, I, I was reading recently through uh, Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History. I'd, I'd nev never read it before. And I was just blown away at all the different references to getting the date right, all the different references to Pesach again and again. And then, you know, having this kind of, not, not, not that it's a myth, but this uh, kind of gotcha moment that that Easter is based upon. It, it, it's a complicated story, but it, as you said, all these other languages that are much earlier than where we're talking about this festival go back to the original original Hebrew. And so it's, uh, I concur with everything you uh, have said. And we could go on for many other topics. I've, I've written a list here of things that I would love to uh, talk to you about uh, because we share a lot of the same interests and we'll definitely have to have you back on in, in the future. Uh, but we better wrap on, uh, on, on this. And we just want to say thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast and uh, thank you for your work in this, in this book and uh, the constant engagement in these topics that are continuing to uh, inform us about just this, in, this fascinating literature that we all love so much. So thank you so much for being on uh, Dr. Rinsberg. Well, you're welcome. And I thank both of you, um, Mark and Chris, and let's also do a little shout out to Mark for conceiving the project of the five views on the Exodus and editing the volume Definitely. and bringing it to fruition. <laughs> Definitely. So until next time, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. 
If you enjoy the show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>